So we're in Mark chapter 14, so you go ahead and turn in your Bible to Mark 14. Uh, if you don't know this, we're, we've been coming passage by passage through uh, the book of Mark for a long time, or for what seems like a long time to us. It's really just a vapor. But we've been coming through chapter uh, through the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 14, verse 53 through 72. That's the section we're on today. <clears throat> You go ahead and turn there, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read that passage together. So pray with me. We need help. Father, thank you so much that we can come to you, and we can ask you for help. And God, you, with all this abundance of riches and grace that you poured out, God, you said if you didn't spare your own son, how would you not also freely in Christ give us all things? So surely you would help us even now. Help me, God, to explain and glory in your word and we help us to see you, Christ, in these words. And I pray you grab our hearts, God, and let us worship you during this time. And I pray for every hearer of your word, Lord, that you would help them to hear your word like the Bereans, to hear it, receive it with all readiness to be those who search the Scripture daily to see if it's true. We need your help, Lord. And I praise you, God, that you're so freely willing to be gracious and give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so Mark 14, if you're looking at it, we're going to be verse... Uh, <clears throat> I didn't look right. I was in Matthew. Mark 14, verse 53 through 72. So read it with me. What we're going to see here, we're going to see uh, two stories kind of connected. They're going to collide right here. Okay? You've got, it's going to be set in the same place in Caiaphas' house. And you're going to see the story of, uh, of Jesus coming under this first trial. Okay? He, he experienced two trials. One before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, religious authorities, and then one before the Romans, civil authorities. And so right now we're going to see Jesus go through this trial with the Sanhedrin. And then we're at the same time, at the, these events are happening at the same time, we're going to see Peter deny Jesus three times as Jesus prophesied would happen. So read it with me. I want you to see how these stories are interlocked together. Verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But it not even did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further do we need of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. Now as Peter was below, now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. He wept. Okay. So I want to kind of set this up. I want, to, I want you to kind of come into the, the scene that we're in right here, okay? So as far as chronology goes, I want you to think about this. He is hours before His crucifixion. He is about to be crucified. He's just been in Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, and He's feeling the weight of the wrath of God that He's about to face at the cross for our sins and for sinners like us. He's just been in Gethsemane. Coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane, He receives the kiss of betrayal from Judas, from His disciple. The multitude armed with weapons begin to arrest Him. Think about Jesus. Coming out of Gethsemane, He's coming out of Gethsemane, and with weapons these people meet Him, and they're going to arrest Jesus. And they do arrest Him. In our passage today, we're going to see Jesus stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And in our passage today, we're going to see Peter deny Jesus three times. And just a few short hours after that, he will be crucified and he will suffer under the wrath of God for us. Got your chronology there? See where we're at? I want you to think about the place that he's in. This whole passage takes place in one setting, in one place. We're in Caiaphas' house. Literally, I just read to you verse 53 to 72. And it's all set on the high priest's property. On his house, in his house, or out in his courtyard. Verse 40, 53, we see him arriving at Caiaphas' house. And after verse 72, we're going to see him leaving Caiaphas' house and going to Pilate to be tried with the Romans. It, if you think about this, if you think about this, look at verse 66. Let me just show it to you. Real quick. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, as Peter was below in the courtyard, as Peter was below, so he's in the courtyard. You think about this high priest, they're very 
rich, wealthy people. These people would have this, this massive house that was there with a courtyard probably in the middle of the buildings more than likely. But either way, there's a courtyard. And you had these upper rooms and they would have been somewhere probably in an upper room with Jesus being tried with the Sanhedrin. And down below in this courtyard is Peter and a whole lot of other people. Servants and soldiers and others. So you have the picture. This is where we're at. And the surroundings. Think about the surroundings. Try to bring yourself into this. It's nighttime. They showed up in Gethsemane with torches because they couldn't see. It's nighttime. Jesus said it's before the rooster crowed. It's nighttime and it's a very cold night. So I want you to think about this cold night, cold hearts, cold bodies. Things are being done in secrecy. It's nighttime. They said, let's not do it in front of all the crowds earlier in chapter 14. So there's secrecy going on. It's nighttime and it's a cold night and there's a stench of violence in the air. This is a it feels violent where they're at. You understand that? Think about it. They went to arrest Jesus with weapons in hand. Soldiers showed up. There's a stench of violence in the air. Peter moves in a rash move to try to cut off one of the captors' heads at one point. It's a violent atmosphere. Those who tried to uh, who were with Jesus at the time tried to flee, and they actually tried to grab one of them. Remember the story of Mark just before this. They tried to grab one of them and grabbed his clothes, and he ran out of his clothes and took off. This is a violent atmosphere, not to mention that these, these people in the Sanhedrin, they want to murder Jesus. They've been looking for a chance to murder Him. So think about this cold night, murderous thoughts going through people's minds, very violent, and there's a lot of people involved in this evil plot. It said there was multitudes that came into Gethsemane to get Jesus. Multitudes. The Sanhedrin was known to be 70 plus people. So when it says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that's the Sanhedrin. 70 plus people there trying Jesus. Not to mention there's going to be a place where it says many false witnesses came against Him. Not a few, but many. So you've got a lot of people involved in this cold night, in this evil plot. Here's something I want you to see. This passage, as you're drawn into the setting, is trying to contrast for you two people, Jesus and Peter. It's making a very clear contrast. Jesus and Peter, or the faithful man versus the unfaithful man. You see this in the way it's structured, okay? Verse 53 and 54. Verse 53 says they led Jesus away. Jesus. Verse 54 says, and Peter followed. So you've got Jesus and you've got Peter in the same place in Caiaphas' house. And then the following verses unfold both of those stories. Verses 55 to 65, the story of Jesus. Verses 66 to 72, the story of Peter is happening at the same time. The faithful man versus the unfaithful man. And you have this contrast going down. Okay, so set the scene. So let's, let's zone in on verse 53. Look at it with me. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. That's Caiaphas. We know from other accounts. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That's that Sanhedrin. That ruling body. Very powerful, ruling, religious body called the Sanhedrin. So you got Jesus there. Where's Jesus? He's arrested. He's bound on a cold night. He's in Caiaphas' house. This is one of the most powerful men in Judaism. Caiaphas, the high priest, says the Sanhedrin is there. Jesus is about to go on trial. 
And this is a sham trial. It's a sham trial. The trial, they already have a verdict cast. He's condemned. They're looking for a way to condemn him to death. The, the, the verdict has already been cast, but they're looking for a way to kill him in such a way that is judicial and it seems righteous. They're looking for a way to kill him, so they put him on trial. It seems judicial and it seems good. It seems righteous. And so they give him this fake trial. So that's Jesus. Where's Peter? Verse 54, where's Peter? Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself at the fire. So Peter had fled with the other disciples. Remember that verse 50? Peter fled with the other disciples. And now he's following at a distance, it says, at a distance to keep from being captured and facing the same persecution as Jesus. It's nighttime. You've got multitudes of people. You can't see them real well except for you can see these torches through the night. It's nighttime and people, multitudes, are piling back into Caiaphas' house. And Peter tries to slip in and mix in with the crowds in the Caiaphas' courtyard. He tries to follow Jesus at a distance. There's a fire going down. There's a fire that's been, been uh, set up here in the middle of the courtyard. And Peter moves in and he sits down by the fire to warm himself, to get comfortable following Jesus just at a distance by the fire. Now, why would Jesus... Why would Jesus want to come into this courtyard? Why would he want to? Why would he, he fled? Why not just flee? Why would he want to come back into this courtyard? I give you three reasons. One, curiosity. If you look at Matthew twenty-six, verse fifty-eight, it says he did this to see the end. He wanted to see what was going to go down. Jesus has been arrested. The Savior's been arrested. The Christ has been the one he professed to be Christ has now been arrested. And he's been saying the whole time, I'm going to be killed. He wanted to see the end. Secondly, love for his Savior. He loves his Savior. And he wants to move in there and see what's going to happen to his Savior. And third, Peter is looking to, to fulfill his promise. You remember, if you look at Mark chapter 14, verse 27 to 31, he made a promise. He said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. Jesus said, yes, you will. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. He says, if I have to go to death, I will not deny you. And here's Peter. He tried to step out one time by swinging a sword. And Jesus said, don't do that. And then he fled with the rest. He didn't keep his promise. And now we see him trying to keep his promise. He's trying to keep his promise. So what we have here is Jesus and Peter. A contrast is being set before you. And it's about to be unpacked. Jesus and Peter. One will be a faithful witness even to the end of death. And one will be an unfaithful witness in order to preserve his own life. Jesus and Peter. One will be a brave warrior heading into battle to conquer through death. The one that has the power of death, that is the devil. And you'll see one be a coward, sifted by Satan like wheat. Jesus and Peter. One will be motivated by love for others even to the destruction of his own life. And one will be motivated by love for himself, even to the point of lying to preserve his own life. One will be a sinless and perfect righteous Savior, and the other one will be wretched and wicked and in need of a Savior. Jesus and Peter. This is set in the scene. Verse 55 through uh, 65, we're going to see Jesus on trial. So Jesus is in Caiaphas' house, and now his story is going to be unfolded in verses 55 through 65, first phrase here, it says, Now the chief priest and all the council, 
There they are. Chief priests, all the council, the Sanhedrin has gathered together. Powerful, religious, powerful, political leaders gathered together right here. And what are they seeking? What's the Sanhedrin seeking to do? And you see as you keep reading, they sought testimony against Jesus to put Him to death in verse 55. They're seeking testimony against Christ to put Him to death. They already knew what they want to do. They want to put Jesus to death. They want to kill Him. And they want to find a way to do it legally and honorably. Now why would they want to do that? Why would the Sanhedrin want to kill Him and yet kill Him so-called legally, so-called honorably or righteously? And I'll give you four reasons. One, these guys love to justify themselves before men. Jesus just earlier said that about them. He said, you whitewashed tombs. You love to appear righteous before men, but inside you're like dead men's bones. So they love to appear righteous before men. So if they can take them through a trial and show them to be guilty, they look like they did the right thing. Number two, there were a few on this council, this Sanhedrin, that did not agree with the decision to kill Jesus. You see this in Luke 23, verse 50 and 51. Luke 23, verse 50 and 51, you've got Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. These men, it says they did not concede to the decision and the deed which they did in killing Jesus. So there's a few on the council that don't want to do that. And so they, they bring about this trial. Number three, they not only want to kill Jesus, they want to defame Jesus. They, want to, they don't want to just kill Him. They want to lay Him up like a condemned criminal and kill Him before other condemned criminals so that He seems like He has condemned Himself. And number four, and this is probably the most significant reason. Why would they do this? Why would they, why would they want to do it and take Him through a trial? Number four, here it is. To have a charge against Jesus to bring before Pilate, the governor of Rome. He wants, uh, the governor of this area in Rome. They, he wants to bring a charge against Jesus so, when they go, so that when they go to Pilate, they can say, this is what He did and He deserves death. Because if you read John chapter 18, verse 31... John 18.31, it's very clear that the Jews did not have the power under Roman authority, they did not have the power to execute people and put them to death. So if they're going to kill Jesus, they're either going to do it secretly or they're going to take it through the Roman courts. Okay, And so they need a charge to bring against Jesus to say, this is what He did, this is what He said, and He deserves to die so that the Romans, particularly Pilate, would put Him to death. So, think about it. They got Him on trial. They're seeking testimony against Him to kill Him, to put Him to death. And it says at the end of verse 55, and I love this, but they found none. But they found none. They couldn't find any dirt on Him. They couldn't find any dirt on Jesus. This man is above reproach. This man is blameless. There's not a charge that they could bring against Him that would actually stick. He's the righteous one. He's the perfect one. He's the spotless Lamb of God. How do you find a condemning testimony against that kind of man? And they couldn't do it. It says, but they found none. So think about it. What did this process, this trial process, what did it look like? You've got this cold night, cold night, multitudes gathered us in the middle of the night, multitudes gathered together, violent against Christ, there's a violence, there's a secrecy in the air. And the following verses, verses 56 and on, give us some insight in what, into what this trial process looked like. Let me read verse 56. For many bore false witness against Him, but their testimonies did not agree. Okay? you got witnesses testifying. 
And you've got agreement. We need agreeing testimony. Agreeing testimony. So what they're trying to do, they're trying to, they're trying to condemn Jesus through the trial process that's laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Listen to Deuteronomy 17.6. Deuteronomy 17.6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death. How? On the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So they're trying to get a couple witnesses together in accordance with Deuteronomy 17 to testify against Jesus, to condemn Him so that so-called legally, pseudo-righteously, they could put Him to death and they could kill Him. But they knew. They knew. Don't you think about it? They knew that they could not find one sin against this person. Much less a sin that's deserving of death. Much less two witnesses to say they had seen him sin a sin of death. They could not find this. And so what do they do? And verse 56 says, false witnesses. They look for false witnesses. It's very likely that they tried to hire these false witnesses just like they tried to hire or they did hire Judas. It's very likely they tried to hire false witnesses. You know this one because it's in the middle of the night. It's not like it's just witnesses out in, the, out in anywhere and just go grab somebody. It's in the middle of the night. It's a secret thing. And also it says right there in our verse, the council sought. They sought testimony against them to put him to death. It seems that they're going out to try to get people to testify against Christ, even hiring them to give false testimony. Now notice it says in verse 56, many, many bore false witness against him. Many bore false witness. There was no lack of false witnesses here. No lack of false witness. There were plenty of people. There were plenty of people that would stand up and say, I saw him do this. Or I saw him say this or teach this. There was heresy or there was wrong. The problem was they couldn't get their testimonies to come together in agreement. They couldn't get that to happen, okay? So you imagine this is incredibly frustrating, right? Incredibly frustrating for the Sanhedrin. You imagine, you just let out an undercover mission impossible to go into Gethsemane and get Jesus and arrest Him. And now, now you, you're trying to, you just arrested Him, now you're trying to hurry. It's in the middle of the night. You're trying to hurry up and get a speedy trial through so that you can condemn Him, convict Him, before anybody wakes up and sees your deceitfulness. And right in the midst of that, they cannot find anything against Him. He's too perfect. Jesus is too holy. He's too righteous. You can't even get a couple paid off false witnesses to agree together and have their stories line up against Him. He is just too good. And this is extremely frustrating for these people. Now, verse 57 and 59, we're going to get a specific example of how this trial went down. Read it with me. Listen. Specific example. Then some rose up and bore false witness against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. So a witness stands up. He says, I, I heard Jesus say that I'm going to destroy the temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it back up. He says, I heard Jesus say that. Now here's what we know. If this would have been true, this would have gotten into a lot of trouble, right? This is public property. Not only that, this is the temple. This is like somebody saying uh, they get caught with plans to blow up the White House. Okay, this gets you in a lot of trouble. 
And they said, we saw, we heard Jesus say that he was going to destroy the temple in three days. And, and he's going to destroy the temple and in three days he's going to raise it back up without hands. Now we know that right here, they're trying to twist Jesus' words. Somebody gives that false witness, somebody else stands up and says, that's right, I heard him say that too. I heard him say that too. And they're trying to twist Jesus' words. The only thing that Jesus said close to this is in John chapter 2, verse 19. And here's what Jesus said in John 2, 19. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. But first of all, he did not say, I will destroy this temple. They're twisting his words. They added the I in there. He said, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Second of all, we know, if you read that, you go read the passage. He's talking about the temple of his own body. He's not talking about that physical temple that they're looking at. So they're aiming to twist Jesus' words in this passage. Another place where they might have been trying to twist, Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus said, Jesus said this. He's looking at the temple, and he says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone should be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. But again, Jesus said, he did not say, I'm going to be the one that tears it down, number one. Number two, he definitely in that passage didn't say, I'm going to rebuild it. This is false testimony against Christ. But according to the verse, even their testimonies did not agree. So it's as if somebody says, I heard him say this. Another witness says, me too, I heard him say that. And then maybe one of these guys that don't agree with the killing of Jesus, like Joseph of Arimathea, he pulls one aside in front of everybody and says, where was he at when he said it? And he pulls the other one aside. Where was he at when he said it? And it doesn't agree. It's obvious that they're lying. It's obviously that they're trying to pin Jesus to the wall. Something like that in this trial. So here's what you got. You got many false witnesses, one after another, laying false accusations against Christ, false accusations against His character, the twisting, the wicked twisting of His words. And Jesus hears Every single, every single word that's spoken. He hears all of the false accusations against him and he says nothing. He's silent. A majestic silence is on Christ in that moment. And this would have been incredibly, incredibly frustrating for those trying to condemn Jesus to death. You imagine the frustration and the anger this building up in the ones that desire to kill Jesus in this moment. Because His character and His words are flawless and perfect and clean and pure, they can't even get false witness testimony to line up against Him right now. And they are angry and frustrated about it. And here's what we need to do at this moment. We need to take a second and we need to worship King Jesus for His sinlessness and His perfect righteousness. We need to worship Him for His sinlessness and His perfect righteousness. He has no sin. Jesus has zero sin. All that He ever did in motive, in action, in, emo in emotion, in word, it is the epitome, it's the epitome, the embodiment of righteousness. He has no sin. Even His most ardent enemies cannot bring a charge against Him that sticks. A thousand years before the Son of God became flesh, angels trembled before Him and bowed down and said, Holy, holy, holy. And then that Son of God takes on flesh. And here He's in the flesh, tempted just like we are, yet without sin. And the angels never changed their mind. They still looked at Him and say, Holy, holy, holy one. He's righteous even now. He has no sin. 1 John 2.1 calls Him the righteous. 
Hebrews 4.15. It says He's tempted in every way yet like we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 calls Him the one who knew no sin. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, it says this about the rod of the stem of Jesse. That's Jesus. It says this. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. He is fully man in every way. Real body. Real emotions. Real thoughts. And he never once sinned. He's qualified to be the Savior. Had he sinned, he would disqualify himself. And he himself would need a Savior from his own sins. And yet he's qualified to be a Savior of sinners. He has no sin in and of himself. Now you think about this. There he is. Think about Jesus. He's before this powerful council. And they cannot lay a charge against him. He is faultless and blameless. They can't lay a charge against him that actually sticks. Now you think about us. Now turn your thoughts to us. And you put us before Almighty God who knows every thought, who knows every action, who knows everything you have ever done, every motive you've ever had, and you stand before Him. Are we blameless? Are we blameless? And you know that we're not blameless. We can have millions upon millions of charges to our account before God Almighty. And I want you to think about this. With the blamelessness of Jesus in mind, and with our condemnation before God Almighty in mind, you think about these two things. You've got these two things in your mind. Now let me share this verse of Scripture with you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Did you hear the swap? Here's the one that you can't lay a charge to this one. And our sins laid upon Him. And here's the ones before Almighty God who you can lay millions of charges against us. And He transfers, everyone who has faith in Christ, He transfers His righteousness onto them. They stand before Him clean and pure. Or Jude. Jude 1.24. He says, He is able to bring us faultless before the presence of His glory. He is able to bring us faultless before the presence of His glory. You think of the way you stand. You're not blameless before God Almighty. And yet everyone who puts their hope in Jesus Christ and turns to Him, they come before God Almighty and they got this before the Sanhedrin type blamelessness right there. Right there on covered in robes of righteousness. This is awesome. Could you see yourself before God? Could you see your own self, your own record, your own heart, your own self standing before God. Could you see yourself there? Innumerable amounts of charges that He could bring against you and every single one of them deserving of eternal hell. Every single one of them. And because Jesus, because Jesus at the cross takes your unrighteousness onto Himself, God says, I see nothing deserving of death in this one. And because he takes His righteousness and He lays it on those who have faith in Christ. He says, I see everything. God says, I see everything deserving of eternal reward in this one. Is that not awesome? It's awesome. Alright. Verse 60. I want you to hear the high priest anger. Listen to the high priest. Frustration. Anger. Listen. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Here's Jesus. He's had these accusations come against him. And he's sitting in silence. 
And this man stands up in anger. Frustration. They just, they just arrested him. Now they can't condemn him. He says, do you just sit there quiet? Don't you hear what they're saying against you? And how is Jesus going to respond? Verse 61. How would Jesus respond? But he kept silent and answered nothing. What restraint, what restraint and patience must have been in Jesus. Jesus is the one that had opened his mouth against all of these groups in the Sanhedrin and put them to shame in the public square. And here he is and he could do it again. And he holds it back. He sits in silence and he doesn't say a word. Why not, Jesus? Jesus, why not rise up and defend yourself against these false accusations? Why not, Jesus? Why not defend your name? And I'll give you three reasons why he doesn't defend his name. Number one, he has set his face to go to the cross. At Gethsemane, he said, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, yet not my will, but your will be done. And the Father's told him that, that this is my will. This is the way you have to go. And he looks at his disciples. He says, rise up and let's go. My enemy's at hand. God, my betrayer's at hand. He set his face to go. And he knows that if he opens his mouth, he will shame these men and all their false accusations. And he'll hinder his way to the cross. So he remains silent. He remains silent. Number two, there's really no need for him to defend himself. It's obvious from these men not being able to line up their stories that they're false stories and they can't pin anything against Him. And number three, let me read this to you. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Jesus' silence is a fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus has proven himself to be the silent lamb, the silent one before his slaughterers. The Isaiah 53 Christ. And you're tempted in that moment to say, Jesus is showing himself to be the one from Isaiah 53 that's wounded for our transgressions, that's crushed for our sins, that comes under the wrath of God on our behalf. He's, he's showing himself, himself to be that one. And I want you to see this. Back in Mark chapter 14. He keeps silent. At the beginning of verse 61, he keeps silent. And then I want you to see the confession. Finally, Jesus makes a confession that eventually condemns him to death. Look at the next part. It's like 61b to verse 62, okay? Read it with me. Again, he observes Jesus' silence. And it says, again... The high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what I want you to see. This is the confession that condemned him to death. Okay, they ask him this question, are you the Christ? And this confession condemned him to death. He says, yes, I'm the Christ. I am. Yes, I'm the Son of God. And then he informs them more about what that actually means. Now, I want you to think about it. Caiaphas, he very straightforward says, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And in that moment, Jesus breaks his silence. Jesus breaks his silence and he gives an answer. Why? Why does Jesus break his silence on this one? And let me give you two reasons. Why does Jesus break his silence? I'm going to give you two reasons. Number one, for clarity's sake. 
He wants, to, he wants to make it abundantly clear. This is who He claims to be. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The, the question is, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And listen, you don't get any clearer than this. I am. I am. It is absolutely laughable that there are people on this earth that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be the Christ. Point them to this verse. Hey, are you the Christ? I am. Isn't that simple? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He claimed to be right here. One reason Jesus gives an answer, and He opens His mouth, and He breaks His silence, is clarity about who He is. Number two is this. Jesus speaks up to this question because He knows that a truthful answer to this question will get Him to the cross where He has set His face to go. Had He opened His mouth to defend Himself against those false accusations, He would have put them to shame. And he might have hindered his way, but this question will get him to the cross because they consider his answer, his truthful answer, that I am the Christ. And if you know what the Old Testament says about the Christ, it's God Almighty in the flesh. And he says, I am that one. And they're going to claim blasphemy, blasphemy. And the ironic thing is that for the Sanhedrin to say that's blasphemy is actually blasphemy in and of itself. It's actually blasphemy on their own. Now, is that all that Jesus said? Look right here. You're still in verse 62. He answers clearly. He gives the affirmative. I am the Christ. Yes, I am. I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And then He expounds on what that means at the end of verse 62. Okay? As soon you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. And in, in expounding that, He's quoting two Old Testament prophecies about Himself. Two Old Testament prophecies about the Christ. One is Psalm 10, verse 1. Another one is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So Jesus essentially, He says, yes, He looks at Caiaphas, yes, I am the Christ. And in case you forgot what that means, I am the Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14, Christ. And I am the Psalm 110, verse 1, Christ. I am that one, and you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. So I want, to, I want, to look with, I want you to look with me to Daniel chapter 7. Okay? You can flip there with me, hold your place in Mark. Daniel chapter 7. Who is he claiming to be? As he says, I am, and he doesn't stop there. Okay? Now, in Jesus' response, he says, And soon you will see the Son of Man, think of that phrase, Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Those two phrases are in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And then he also says, You'll see him seated at the right hand of the power. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. So let's start right here, Daniel 7, 13. <clears throat> this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus. When He ascends on, which by the way, is coming soon, right? He's in a few hours He'll go to the cross. In a few days He'll rise from the grave. And a few days after that, He will ascend on house the God-man. And that's what this verse is about. Look at verse 13. I was watching in the night. I was watching the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Now I want you to think about this. Think about this. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second person in the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God, second person in the Trinity. There's one God, three, you know this, three persons in this one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then one of the persons of the one God took on flesh. Namely, the Son of God. 
He took on flesh. He's the Christ. He's, he became human. He didn't lose his godness, but he added humanity to his divinity. He became a man in this moment. Now, after dying for our sins, and after rising from the grave, the Old Testament prophesied that he would ascend back into heaven. Only now, he's not just the divine one, but he is the human one. The fully God, fully human, the God-man ascending into heaven. Our own flesh and blood, like us, is ascending into heaven in Christ Jesus as God in the flesh. And this verse says a human. That's what verse 13 is about. A human. Like me and you in ways, and yet God Almighty ascends back into heaven before the Ancient of Days. All the angels, think about it. All the angels gathered around to watch the Son of God come in flesh before the Ancient of Days. And at this point, you can take Psalm 110 verse 1 and inject it in right there in between Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Because in Psalm 110 verse 1, it says we get a little insight into a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And it says, The Lord, that's God the Father, said to my Lord, that's God the Son, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. So he looks at him. You think about it. God the Father looks at God the Son and says, You finished the task. Sit down and reign forever. You finished it. You have vindicated my justice. You've made a way for them to be forgiven. And you sit down and reign as king. Right here in Daniel 7.13 in Psalm 10, verse 1. Daniel 7.14, if you keep reading, it gives you the extent of this king's dominion. Think about the extent of his dominion. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. What's the extent of it? Every nation, tribe, and tongue, including the nation, this Jewish nation, over whom the Sanhedrin is supposed to be leading, they're all going to bow down to Him. And for how long? It said His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom in that verse. So Jesus says to Caiaphas, Yes, I am. I am the Christ. On the day of 7, 13-14, Christ, King, who will be King, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who will reign as King forever and ever and ever. He says, I am that one. Now, pause for just a moment. I want you to think about something. Pause on that thought. Pause on the flow of all the story and just think about something for a moment, okay? What we're given here is an ultimate example of someone enduring suffering while looking forward to the glories that are coming. He's enduring suffering while looking forward. Eyes set. The joy set before Him looking to the glories that are coming. You think about it. He's in the midst of suffering like no human has ever experienced before or since. No one's ever experienced suffering like this. And right in the midst of it, His mind is on what's to come. That in just a little while, in just about a month, I'm going to ascend before the Father and I'm going to be told, sit down in my right hand as King forever and ever. And He's looking forward to that time. He knows that He's going to endure intense suffering. And yet He also knows that He's going to rise and He's going to ascend. And you see Him looking forward to that as the rule of all. Hebrews 12 too, says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross 
despising the shame. The cross was something to be endured as suffering. And it's something that, that, he, that he hated and despised. And yet for the joy that was set before Him. And this is what true Christians can walk in as well. True Christians can walk in this. Romans 8.18 It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glories that will be revealed. There are sufferings of this present time. And they are painful and they hurt. There's no doubt about it. But they do not compare with the glories for a Christian. All those who are born again in Christ. It does not compare with the glories that will be revealed. But we can set our mind right in the midst of pain and suffering. We can have a deep-rooted joy as we do just what Christ did. And we set our mind on the joy that's set before us. Okay. Back in the story. Back in the story. you got the Sanhedrin here, right? And their goal is to put him to death. Their goal is to put a charge against Jesus that they could take before Pilate and Pilate would kill him. And so this was perfect. This was perfect for the Sanhedrin. This was the perfect response. Why? Because when he says he's the Christ, he's saying he is a king. And when he says he is a king, the Romans believe there's another king, Caesar. And so they could have, they could have laid up Jesus as an insurrectionist in this moment. He's coming to, to usurp the, the throne of Caesar. And this is what they bring before Pilate. You see this, listen. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, this is exactly what they bring to Pilate. Listen. They begin to accuse Jesus before Pilate, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And if Pilate hears that, that Jesus is an insurrectionist, surely he'll put him to death in a moment. So this was great. This was great for the Sanhedrin. Now I want you to notice the response of the Sanhedrin to Jesus' answer. Look at verse 63 through 65, back in Mark. Mark 14, verse 63 to 65. We're going to see their response to Jesus. Listen to it. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further deed do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Jesus just claimed to be Christ. The King. The eternal reigning King. And the response is this man tears, his high priest tears his clothes. It's a false display of anguish over the words of Jesus. And then he says those words. What further do we need of witnesses? As if they could get any witnesses together anyways. But what further do we need of them? You have heard his blasphemy. What do you think, he says to the Sanhedrin? What do you think? Give a verdict on this situation. And what verdict do they give? At the end of verse 64, they all condemn him to be deserving of death. Please, let those words sink in. The blameless, faultless, righteous Son of God. Listen to it. They all condemned him to be deserving of death. The one who has never sinned, the only perfect one, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They treated him like a condemned, deserving of death criminal. That's how they treated him. And in just a little while at the cross, God the Father is going to look on His Son like us. A condemned, 
criminal deserving of death, Christ Jesus is seen by this Sanhedrin and soon by His Father as a condemned criminal deserving of death. You hear that? He stood in our place. We're condemned to die. And He stood in our place. Listen to the hymn. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned He stood. In our place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then in verse 65, they begin to beat Him. The mocking of Jesus, the beatings of Jesus begins to intensify in this moment. You've got human spit. It's actually hitting the face of the Son of God, Son of God who came to rescue. Human spit hitting Him right in the face in this moment. They begin to mock Him. They say, prophesy if you can. They blindfold him, they punch him in the face, and they say, who hit you, Jesus, if you're really a prophet? Go ahead and prophesy who hit you. And you know, like I know, that in that moment, he not only could have told them their name, but he could have told them vivid details that nobody else knows, and he remained silent in that moment. Humbly and majestically silent in that moment. And now with blood mixed with spit coming down his swollen face, they take him up, and they're about to take him to Pilate. Who eventually crucified. Verse 66 through 72, we're going to be here for a shorter time. And that's on the back of your sheet. And what we're going to see here is Peter denies Christ. Peter's going to deny Christ. I want you to remember that these things are happening in the same place, at the exact same place, in the courtyard of the house that he's in, and at the exact same time. Verses 66 to 72 is an expansion on what we just read in verse 54 about Peter. And I want you to remember that just a few hours earlier, just a little while earlier, Jesus had looked at His disciples and said, all of you are going to fall away. And Peter says, not me. If all fall away, I'm not falling away. This is in Mark 14, verse 27 through 31. He says, I'm not falling away. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm telling you, before the rooster crows twice, that means before the night is even up, you are going to deny me three times. You are going to deny me three times. And more with more passion, Peter says, no, it's not true. If I have to die, I will never deny you. So you remember, that's what's just gone down. Jesus has just said this is going to happen, and now we're going to see these events unfold. But let's start by looking at that verse 54 one more time. Verse 54 right here. Peter followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. He sat with the servants and he warmed himself by the fire. Peter's following Jesus at a distance. He loves Jesus. He wants to see how these things end. But he loves himself. And he loves his safety. And so he follows Jesus at a distance. He's trying to get comfortable in that courtyard. It's cold outside. And he's trying to get up comfortable up by that fire. Follow Jesus at a distance and get comfortable right by the fire so he can enjoy the warm comforts of those who do not love Christ. R.C. Sproul compared this to the way, and I thought this was a good observation, he compared this to the way that many people in our culture will follow Jesus. At a distance, just safe enough, Love myself, don't want any harm to myself, and all the comforts of the world. If I can have a distance, all the comforts of the world, yes, I'll follow Jesus. Beware of this. It terribly, this terribly dishonors Jesus, and eventually it leads to denial of him. So think about it. You got Peter there, verse 54. 
He's secretly in the courtyard. It's a cold night, warming himself by the fire. He's probably hearing the charges being brought up against Jesus. He's hearing the false accusations. He eventually hears blasphemy come out of that room. He's hearing the things going on. They're about to drag him in and drag him out of there and beat him ferociously, Christ, and mock him. And he's right there in the courtyard and it's all going down. And we can read in verse 66 through 68, the first denial of Christ. Look at verse 66 through 68. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming, warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. So a young girl says, You were with Jesus, right? And Peter denies it. He denies that he was with Christ. He says, I don't even know what you're talking about. And you think about how despicable this is. He has been with Jesus for three years. He's called Him Christ. He's called Him Savior. He's been with Him for three years. And He acts like He doesn't even know Him in this moment. This is despicable. This is a slap in the face to Christ. He's denied Him. This is a dishonor to Jesus. Jesus pours His life into Him for three years. And now He acts like He doesn't even know Him. Jesus is right now, as Peter is denying Him, is pouring out His life even to death. And Peter just slaps Him in the face and says, I don't even know who you are. This is despicable. We see the second denial of Christ in verse 69 and the first part of verse 70. And the servant girl saw Him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but He denied it again. So the girl says, this is one of them. Now she's speaking to some others that are around. She's not speaking right to them. She's speaking to some other people around. She said, this is one of them. And then we see Peter is going to deny this again. And this is disgusting. Disgusting. This is his opportunity before other people that are looking on to stand up for Christ. To come against those false accusations that are coming up against him. But this is disgusting. He doesn't do it. He denies his Lord before these people. He even does it publicly. And then we see the third denial of Christ in verse 70, at the end of verse 70 through verse 71. And a little later, which we know from the other accounts, about an hour has gone by. These things are stretched out over a few hours. About an hour has gone by according to the Gospel of Luke. A little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So we know he denies him three times. You know in the third denial, he ramps it up. It says he curses and he makes an oath. In other words, he's calling out curses on himself. He's saying something like, God strike me down if I'm lying right now. I promise, that's the oath, I promise I do not know this man. The one who loved him. This is a wretched thing to do. I want that to settle in on you about Peter. This is a wretched thing that he did. The one who loved him and is giving his life for him. And he says, I don't even know you. Three times. Vehemently says, I don't even know you. There's a progressive severity. First it's just a little girl. Just a young girl. And then it's a girl before these bystanders. And then he directly says to the bystanders with, with passion, I don't know you. I don't know this man. 
He's, a, he's just, the severity, the progression of the severity is getting worse and worse as he denies Christ as he's dying for him, as he's going to the cross for him. And so I want you to think about this. There's not, there are a few sins on this earth that can hold a candle to what Peter did that night. There are a few sins that can hold a candle to what Peter just did in denying the Savior, denying the Lord. So let's look at the response. Okay? What happens, excuse me, just the, re, the response of what happens after he denies them on that third, that third go-around. Look at verse 72. A second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Or one version says he broke down and he wept in that moment. So the second rooster crows. Just like Jesus said would happen. All Jesus' words are true. The second rooster crows right after his third denial. And Peter hears it. He hears it. And according to Luke chapter 22, verse 61, at that moment the rooster crows and Jesus and Peter actually lock eyes in that moment. They lock eyes in that moment. Can you imagine locking eyes with Christ in that moment? So think about it with me. Peter, he sees the Savior's eyes. He remembers the Savior's words. And he breaks down and he begins to weep. What would it have been like? If you think with me, what would it have been like to look into the Savior's eyes in that moment? What would that have been like? You think about it. His eyes are bloodshot. His clothes are stained with blood because his capillaries just bursted in Gethsemane as, as he began to sweat drops of blood. Eyes bloodshot. Clothes stained with blood in this moment. He's bound up in his hands. He's being treated like a condemned criminal. His face is swollen. He's bruised. His, his spit, human spit mixed with blood running down his face in this moment. And all this humility he's enduring to save the one that he's looking at. Save the one that he's looking at. What do you think Peter would have seen in his eyes? You think Peter would have seen, I told you so. I told you you were going to deny me. You think that's what he, he would have seen? And I'll say probably not. Instead, I'd say he saw compassion. He saw love in the eyes of the Savior. He saw something like, Peter, I'm enduring all this suffering for you. I see you right here, and I'm enduring all this suffering for you. Though you deny me, though you deny me, I go to the cross still. I don't stop. I don't throw it aside. I still go to the cross, though you deny me, and I die for your sins, even that sin you just committed. I will, it will be laid upon me at the cross and I'll suffer under the wrath of it for your sake. And Peter breaks down and he weeps. He breaks down and he weeps. A couple application points and we'll be done. First application point is this. In this story, why do you get this contrast between Jesus and Peter? Peter represents us all. Peter represents us all. Why would the writer Mark make such a, you know, a connected, collided con uh, uh, intersection between Jesus and Peter in this section of Scripture? Why would he do that? Peter represents us all. Or I can tell it to you this way. If you, could, if you looked at me right now and said, that's right, I'm just as vile as Peter is, and I would do the same thing left to my flesh. Well, then you're like Peter. And if you say, no, I would never do what Peter did, well, then you're still like Peter. That's what he said. So either way, Peter 
represents us all, okay? Unfaithful cowards. Unfaithful cowards. Loving ourselves. Unwilling to suffer. Peter represents us all. J.C. Ryle said this. These things are written to show the church of Christ what human nature is even in the best of men. Even in the best of men. So think about Peter. Think about Peter. We're going to think about Peter for a minute and I want you to make the application to yourself. Okay? Think about Peter with me. Peter was a real man. It's not just a storybook. He was a real man with a real life who really did these things to Jesus. There was, there's a real heavenly record. The Scripture says, and the books were open. There's a real heavenly record with Peter's sins on it. Even these heinous sins like this and millions of other sins, each one of them deserving eternal destruction. And his sins are written in a book. He's a real man with real sins with a real record before God. Now you tell me, shouldn't a man like this go to hell? Shouldn't a man that did this, a man like Peter, should he not go to hell forever? And you know that he should. But Jesus went to the cross for him. You think about it. He represents us all. Jesus went to the cross for him. He wiped off his record of sin. Even heinous ones. Even grievous ones like this sin. And he wiped it off the record. It was laid upon Christ. And all the wrath of God due his sin came down on Jesus instead of him. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin like Peter did? Like it says he broke down and wept. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin like that? And if you have, let me read this to you. Because just a little while later, I want you to hear what Peter wrote. Just a little while later. It wasn't, it wasn't long after this. Okay? Peter writes this. In his lifetime, not very long, in his lifetime, the one who broke down and wept, knowing what he'd done, and denied Christ three times. Listen to what he writes. This is 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. Listen to this. Verse 21 says, Christ also suffered for us. Right in the middle of that verse. Christ suffered for us. Peter's mind as he's writing is on the sufferings of Jesus. Which part of his sufferings, Peter? Verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Even his enemies couldn't find a charge to put against him. They would stick. He couldn't do it. Verse 23. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And I'm thinking about the silence of Jesus. So here's Peter. And he's got these moments in his life when he denied Christ. And he's got these moments on his mind. And if at any point he's got that on his mind, what should he think about? I denied him three times. Why did I do such a thing? And instead, what does the next verse say? Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. Even the three denials. He said they were put on the tree with Christ and He took the punishment that I deserved. Yes! And everybody the same Christ Jesus and has faith in Him can have the same. Can have the same. One more question as we ponder the reality of Peter represents us all. Peter represents us all, okay? Think about it. And here's one more question about that. Should a man like Peter ever be used in ministry and service to God? Would you use a man like this in ministry and service to God? Have you ever felt unworthy to serve Jesus Christ? Unworthy to share His Word? You ever felt that way? Well, should a man like this not only deserve help, but should he be used in the ministry? And I want you to be encouraged because God restored Peter who denied him three times as he's suffering for his sins and God restored him to feed his lambs. 
And Jesus told him this before he denied him and after he denied him. And I want you to see the compassion of Jesus and be encouraged that you can be used to serve Jesus as I read these two passages to you. Listen to Luke chapter 22. Listen, just listen. Luke 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter says, I won't do it, Lord. I won't deny you. And Jesus goes on to say, the rooster won't crow. The rooster won't crow before you deny me three times. So what did Jesus say to him before he even denied him? When you return, Peter, I'm going to restore you. And, and I want you to strengthen your brethren. I want you to serve me by strengthening your brethren. The one who's about to deny him. And then you read another account. Just, just listen to it. John chapter 21. This is after. That was before. This is after. John 21 verse 15. Here's the one that denied Him three times. And Christ is going to restore all three of those sins. Listen. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, He's looking at Peter. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love Me more than these? And He said to him, Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. He said to him, Feed My lambs. That's service. That's ministry. Feed my lambs. That's one time. Number two. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Third time. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Probably has the three denials on his mind. He's grieved because he had said it to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Should God use a man like this? And he does. And he does. One more application for him. Hear me out here. Please, I plead with you. Know the potential that is in you to sin grievously. And then respond accordingly. Know the potential that is in each one of you here, each one of us, to sin heinously against God. And then respond in the right way. If you as a Christian, if you really know the potential that lies within you, even the most zealous person here like Peter, even the most zealous person, Peter was the most zealous of the disciples, even the most zealous person, if you know the potential in you to sin against God in horrible ways, then you will respond accordingly. Take heed to this warning. Peter did not know the potential in himself to sin grievously, and therefore he did not respond accordingly. Instead, he responded with self-confidence. I will never deny you. Self-confidence before Jesus. I will never, ever deny you. And what he did as a result was something he never thought he did. He would ever do. He denied his Lord. Robert Murray McShane said this. He knew his potential to sin grievously. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. He said, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The, sin, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Please beware of the self-confidence of Peter. Beware of the self-confidence of Peter. Think about it with me. How does this self-confidence of Peter show itself? It shows itself in thoughts like this. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe it. I would never do 
Something like that. And I want you to think about when you hear about sin, or you think about sin, maybe in somebody else, do you arrogantly turn up your nose and say, I'll never do such a thing as that? Or do you cry out to God and you say, God, I would do that unless you keep me, unless you preserve me. I need you, oh God. I need your help. Know that there's a potential in you. The seed of every sin on the man lies within our heart. So how does it show itself? It shows itself like that. Number two, it shows itself like this. Number two, in prayerlessness. It shows itself in prayerlessness. Like Peter, who slept through the prayer meeting before the trial. It shows itself like this. You think about it. If your prayer life is small, your self-confidence is large. If your prayer life is small, your self-confidence is large. You think, I don't need God. I got this. I can do this. I got it in control. But when you pray to God, you say, I need help. I can't do it. I need the Lord. And your prayer life shows it. Number three, how does self-confidence show itself? A disregard for God's Word. Or a negligence in God's Word. You think about Peter. Jesus quoted Scripture to him that he would work, that he would run away. And then he gave a direct prophecy that he would deny. And Peter totally denied the words of Jesus and the Scripture that he quoted. If you are self-confident, you don't feel like you need God's Word for power. You don't feel like you need God's Word for guidance. So you neglect it. You neglect it. But if, but if you're humble... You feel a desperate need for God's Word. And you say things. You say things like Psalm 119, verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, it says this. He, he, says, he says, I'm prone to wonder. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll turn away from you. Oh, let me not turn away from your law. Oh, let me not turn away from you. feel the... See, he knows his, his potential to sin against God. And his cry in verse 10 is, let me not wonder from your commandments. And then he responds accordingly. Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What you do with God's Word says something about self-confidence. So, in closing, let me say this again. Beware of the self-confidence of Peter. Know your potential in you to sin grievously against God like Peter, the most zealous of the apostles. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride, self-confidence, pride goes before destruction. Know this about yourself. And respond accordingly. 1 Corinthians 10 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed. Take heed lest he fall. Respond. Take heed lest you fall. Cry out to God often in prayer and, and be, get buried in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before you and we can read these words. And I pray, God, you would cause us to worship you, Lord Jesus. I worship you in all that you have done. And that even for those who deny you and, and walk in grievous sin, God, that you died on the cross for them. Help us, Lord, please, to worship you in that because you are worthy of praise. You're worthy of praise. And God, I pray that you, you would humble all of us, God, and you would rid this, you would rid this place, you would rid our church, God, and, and others that are here. You would just rid us, Lord, of the self-confidence of Peter. God, I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.